My name is Chris Richard. I am the producer of Our Leader Chat. I'm not a traditional educator, so as I listen to our guests and Jeff talk, I always learn something new. This discussion with Todd Whitaker is dense. Clearly, school change is a topic unto itself, but the art and strategy of leading it is different. Jeff and Todd were like peas in a pod and could have gone on forever. Blame me or thank me, but I finally had to push them to end the discussion, otherwise they may have talked all day. You are going to love this. Enjoy. Ladies and gentlemen, educators, how are you? I am Jeff Rose. Welcome to Leader Chat. And you should be just as pumped as I am to learn. Today, we will be learning. We are engaging with uh, a leader that I've heard several times. I've read um, much of his text, definitely not all of it. There's too much for me to have read. Um, but likely, when I mention the name of this individual, some of you may think, yeah, I, I, I've, I, I've seen him, or I've read his stuff, or I know of him, because um, we just were very fortunate today to have t Dr. Todd Whitaker with us. And I mentioned to Todd when we were chatting prior to this, the airing of this show, is that like other guests, I know him way better than he knows me, but um, we're trying to make up for that. Let me give you a quick bio, and I'm going to invite Todd in, and then we're going to dive into the content. Dr. Todd Whitaker... Um, he has agreed, I, I go by Jeff, and he's going to go by Todd with me. Dr. Todd Whitaker has been fortunate to be able to blend his passion with his career. Recognized as a leading presenter in the field of education, his message about the importance of teaching has resonated with hundreds of thousands of educators throughout the world. Todd is Professor of Educational Leadership at the University of Missouri and Professor Emeritus at Indiana State University. He spent much of his life pursuing his love of education by researching and studying effective teachers and principals. Prior to moving into higher education, he was a math teacher and basketball coach in Missouri. Todd then served as a principal at the middle school, junior high, and the high school levels, one of the nation's leading authorities on staff motivation, teacher leadership, and principal effectiveness. Todd has written... And I'm not joking. Todd has written over 60 books, including the national bestseller, What Great Teachers Do Differently. Other titles, including Dealing with Difficult Teachers, 10-Minute In-Service, Your First Year, What Great Principles Do Differently, Motivating and Inspiring Teachers, and Dealing with Difficult Parents, um, as though there is such a thing. That's a joke. I am going to talk to him about this, this book that I thought was really important for our members to hear at a time like this called Leading School Change. That doesn't mean we're not going to delve into other material that he has produced and speaks about, but um, I've, I, I've marked the H-E double hockey sticks out of this book, and I'm prepared to ask a variety of questions because I find the, the content to be really intriguing and helpful for leaders and educators, which is my job to bring that content to them. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, let me invite Todd to our screen. Hey, Todd, it's great to see you. Thank you so much for being here with us today. Jeff, I'm honored. I appreciate it. And I'm more honored to have a chance to interact with the people that are leading schools everywhere because they're, they've shown the world how to lead the last few years. And it's a treat to always be able to connect with them. Indeed, they have. I often um, say to them, it's, um, I, I'm in awe because having done the work, but I don't do it anymore. And I led through some tough stuff, but nothing like leaders are leading through now, nor what they have in the last few years. And 
I was out of that seat prior to COVID. So it wouldn't be fair for me to be too direct in terms of what I see, just just to give them nothing but honor and appreciation because they're doing uh, just noble work. And obviously you agree with me. So how have you been? I mean, you're you're traveling. Um, I know you're extremely busy. Um, just catch us up. Um, I'm very fortunate. Uh, I have the opportunity to work with educators everywhere. And Zoom has also added to that, which has really been fun. And I'm very blessed, Jeff, because my personality is so annoying. It comes across exactly the same on Zoom as it does in person. And so <laughs> um, uh, that's a plus that I have an opportunity others don't. The only thing I do remind people is that when we're doing Zoom or anything virtual, please remember that the camera adds 10 pounds and I got like seven cameras on me. So if you could do the math, that'd be helpful. But oh, yeah. We're all very concerned about that, Todd, because I mean, that, that, that's the first thing that I noticed was what's wrong with this guy on camera? That's definitely not the case. For those that are listening to the podcast, look, Todd Whitaker is a, is a striking, young, handsome man. So welcome, Todd. I mean, you're, you're, you're yes. a good looking dude. And if you're not, if you're just on the podcast, you don't know Jeff's nose just grew three inches. So keep that in mind. <laughs> but that's allowed me to work with, uh, the other day I, I spoke to 100,000 people um, around the world. And um, almost none were in, it was a World Education Forum, almost very few were in the United States. So it was fun to connect with other people and without having that travel involved in there. And so I'm very blessed I do that and I write books, and, but I really just, uh, it's my heart. I mean, that's really what it is. It's my heart. It's I just believe in education. I believe in the significance of education. And I'm so proud to have educators as my peer group. It's just a book. And so, um, it's fun to be with people who have devoted their lives to making a positive difference. So can you maybe help us understand how you made this transition? You know, obviously, you're, you're a teacher, you were a coach, uh, a principal, and so forth. But you made this transition to, you know, you've written like 60 books and you're impacting hundreds of thousands of educators through not just your texts, but your speaking and your, your, I mean, how did you create this focus? What was the, what was the path to where you are now? Um, well, I'm lucky. I, I really think anyone could do what I do if that's what they chose to do. Um, I was very blessed. My wife and I were both principals and we were in Jefferson city, Missouri. And, we just were very fortunate to maybe have done some things that other people weren't doing or haven't done or still haven't done years ago. And we had visitors to our school literally daily from all over the world. They'd come to our school. And um, and I thought it was just stuff everybody was doing or everybody be doing in a year or two. And then the people then would come and want us to come and work with their schools. And that's kind of where that started. And our superintendent was incredible and would allow us to go and travel and do things. but. We both felt too guilty related to our schools. Then we had children and my wife actually used to speak more than I did. And we kind of had to make a decision once we had children. So I decided to continue down the path and and we felt too guilty leaving our schools, even though um, we were supported doing it. Our assistant principals liked it and that, but then we moved to Indiana State and that kind of gave me more flexibility. And uh, I started presenting on things and my wife kept encouraging me to write books on them. Uh, because she felt they were so concrete, other people could literally write the books on them once they come to a session. And my first book was Dealing with Difficult Teachers, simply because I was a middle school principal and you cannot hide an ineffective <laughs> teacher school because the kids every day are on the hunt for weakness. And um, it kind of started from there. And then somebody would, I'd hear about a need or somebody would see something or I'd hear someone speak 
and I'd be, and this is terrible, and I don't mean it in this way, but I hear someone speak and I'd go, they're wrong. They're, 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 they can't help you. And the problem is people are listening. And or I'd, I'd see a book and I'd glance at it and I'd go, well, this is incorrect. This, this, this isn't going to help people. And um, so I'd feel the need to write something else. And I'd feel the need, and it's really just to keep my head from exploding. And I'm not a book salesman. I'm really not. I write books so people know. I try to write books. This doesn't mean you do it. But I try to write books so people know exactly what to do. Because general general information doesn't help them. Okay, so let's... That's that's my goal when I write something. Doesn't mean I accomplish it, but that's my goal. Well, uh, let, let's just, I'm going to I'm going to push on on this book a little bit, leading school change because that's um, that's what drew me in, is that this this book to me did not come across as uh, general um, advice. This this book comes across as very pragmatic and practical and helpful for somebody. Um, responsible with leading change. My, my first principalship, Todd, I was uh, an elementary school principal called Russell Elementary School, just outside of Portland, Oregon. It was uh, two, it was 2000 was the year. And um, very shortly thereafter, the staff and I and the site council decided our school needs to go through some major changes. I mean, we need to do some overhauling to this place because we have so much talent and potential and yet we're not tapping it. And I was reminded of a game we played in grad school called the change game, where we would have to move uh, staff based upon criteria. So Mrs. Brown had a certain personality, had certain issues, certain enthusiasms compared to Mr. Green. And we got to know all of the staff and we had to somehow through this process lead them across the board, you know, to get to this change. It was complicated and nuanced. This book reminded me of that. It reminded me of when we moved to Russ from Russell Elementary to Russell Academy of Academic Achievement, it required a very nuanced and specific approach to get everyone there with us. So that being said, what are you seeing right now relative to the needs of change in schools and our ability to lead them? Um, you know, I, I'm somebody, and this probably makes people think just how old is this person? <laughs> I, I don't see a difference in this. We're all, we've never been in the perfection business. We're always in the improvement business. And I think our goal has always been, how can we be better? How can we reach more students? How can we be more successful? You know, it's really an interesting thing. I don't think people are resistant to change. I really don't. I, th I think they're resistant to improvement. And that's a very different thing. However, great people are resistant to change if it's going to make something worse, but they're not resistant to improvement. And ineffective people are not resistant to change. It's really a strange thing. Uh, they're not resistant to change if it means they may do less, but they're resistant to improvement because that's probably going to require them to do something more and different. And so um, I, I think there's always been this need, and I think it's actually the same process. You know, it's funny. One of the books I'm, I'm most excited about that I'm writing right now is called How to Get All Teachers to Be Like the Best Teachers, because in my mind, that's the solution to education. In every school, everywhere, you have at least one teacher that's cracked the Da Vinci Code. See, we don't need something new. We don't need to innovate. We need to replicate. We have this there. The challenge isn't that we don't have effective people. The challenge is we don't have enough effective people. 
But now that we have one in your setting, in your school, with this leader, with this budget, with these kids, it shows it's possible to do that in that school. And we just need more of it. And the ability to replicate is so much easier than the ability to innovate, if that makes any sense. And I, and you know, it's funny because one of the things we hear is education's broken. And that's a community, education's not broken. It's not broken. If it was broken, you wouldn't have any great teachers. You wouldn't have any great schools. You wouldn't have any outstanding districts. But instead, we have many great teachers, many great schools, and lots of outstanding districts. That doesn't mean we have enough. That doesn't mean we don't change the way we approach things. But, but see, it, it isn't broken in the successful places. We just need the other, other things and people to become like the successful ones. And I think that's very doable. I, you know, everything I write, I almost call it simple. It's just not always easy. Because the concepts are simple, it's just not always easy to do it. It's like the concept of treating people with respect and dignity is simple. It's just not always easy to do it. Yeah. But the group will figure out how to do it, and the others don't, and we have to keep moving in that path to ha possibly have a chance. That's my opinion. That doesn't mean it's correct, but that's my view. Well, let's talk about that opinion. I'm really curious. So when you then, when we hear, especially in, you know, where we are right now in terms of Oh, maybe some of the political discord that we're experiencing and how that lands in the laps of educational leaders. This, this push, um, a cry on one hand for change. Another hand, sometimes people want to go back to a normal because of once we once thought we had. Um, in the meantime, sometimes when you say educational reform is needed, it can come across to some educators as offensive because sure. of the very fact what you just said, that education does work. And so as soon as we start to say that it needs to be reformed and completely flipped on his head, it's almost so we're saying, well, the baby should be thrown out with the bathwater. It is not appropriate what we're doing to children, and that's not the case. How then do you define and talk about change without offending and with finding the fine line of maybe not a need to completely reform, but a need to do what we know is best practice, which by the way, we do know is your point. Sure. And part of it is it's just the generalization. You know, the problem isn't teachers, but the problem might be this teacher. Mm -hmm. The problem isn't students, but the problem might be this student. The problem isn't superintendents, but the problem might be this superintendent. The problem isn't parents. The problem might be this parent. And once we understand that, the difference between the best people and the worst people is a cavern. It's not a sliver. And, and it's, we get confused that we think everyone's the same. Every policeman's the same. Every fireman's the same. Every teacher's the same. Every, and it's just not. And, and, and we know that if you think about it. And we just get confused. And so we generalize. And thus it moves instead of, can we operate with a scalpel and improve, do something about if there's six teachers that are less than acceptable within a school of 50, can we do something to improve four of them and remove two of them? And if we just generalize about this school's broken or education's broken, then what happens is you insult the good people and, the, and, and we can't do that. That's never gonna lead to change, in my opinion. So for the, for the educational leader who would be shaking their head up and down based upon what you just said, what do you think the message should be to their own people specific to change? Um, well, I think first we have to internalize. You have two ways to improve a school, hire better teachers and improve the ones you have. And you have two ways to improve a school district, hire better principals and improve the ones you have. Mm -hmm. And when we don't do things that are going to lead down to that path, we're literally just chasing our tail. 
And what happens is it's never programs, it's always people. And I'm gonna give you a quick ex societal example that's a big deal to people. And it's, it's very potentially hurtful, and so I'm, I'm nervous saying it. Participation trophies, okay? Mm -hmm. Jeff, have you heard people talk about participation trophies? Yes, I have. And they talk about they're the bane of the Western world, aren't they? I've heard this too. And it's the problem with everything in society, isn't it? Uh -huh. Okay. I, I don't know if you knew this. I work with coaches, like sports coaches also. And I'll work with a coach and they'll talk about the fact they can't motivate their players. And I say, why can't you motivate the players? And they said, they've all gotten participation trophies. And I say, what? And they go, we've all gotten participation trophies. I go, I don't understand. And they go, yeah, it's a problem because they don't earn it. When we were little, we had to earn it. And I said, I know what you mean. When I was two, I had to mow the neighbor's lawn for I could have supper. But anyhow, <laughs> uh, we have to earn it. And I, they go, you know, they don't earn it. It's a trophy for you and a trophy for you and a trophy for you. I said, so these participation trophies are a big deal, aren't they? And they go, yes, they are. I go, you know who else got participation trophies? And they say, who? I said, the team that beat you last night. You do understand that, don't you? And, and you know who else got participation trophies? The team that beat you last Wednesday. And you know who else got participation trophies? The team you're playing Saturday. So you got to decide, are you looking for excuses? Are you looking for solutions? See, effective people don't talk about participation trophies. Ineffective people always talk about participation trophies because they love to talk about things that are out of their control that are going to make the difference. So they're waiting for society to get rid of participation trophies. And then now they can be, an effect, be effective. The best people look for excuses. The average people and below average people look for, so excuse, uh, look for excuses and the best people look for solutions. And once we realize that, because I want you to think about this in, a, in, a, in any school, how many of you in your school have at least one student, at least one, that maybe, possibly, might have been a little better off if they'd ever gotten a participation trophy? And go into the best, most well-rounded kid in your entire school or school district's bedroom. What's it full of? Participation trophies. Mm -hmm. Why do we think that's the problem? Why do we think that's solution? The best teachers never talk about participation trophies. Ineffective people talk about whatever their version of participation trophies is. And once we understand that, we start looking for solutions instead of looking for excuses. And that's where it all has to start. We have to have belief there's a solution. And there is. That's like I said, how to get all teachers to be like the best teachers. In every school, there's a solution. It's right there. And it's just getting more of that. You notice that teacher doesn't talk about participation trophies and the ineffective one talks about society today, what's wrong with life, gas prices, participation trophies, and they just hang on to that. And they hang around other people who also talk about the same things because that reinforces each other. And once you break it down to specific people, now all of a sudden ineffective people can't hide. But when we say teachers nowadays, do you see how ineffective people can hide as well as effective people get insulted? Right. Yeah. I mean, this, the, these sweeping generalizations that we're making and the, the unfortunate sometimes narrative that inaccurately describes the beauty that still is happening in schools is um, sad and unfortunate. And so it, here's, here's a question I have that because I, I really, like I said before, even before we started to air, and I want to say this out loud, the leading school change, the, this book, what I appreciated about is that it, it doesn't come across to me as um, general theory leaving me questioning on, so how would I, how do I do this? Right? It, it, it starts broader and it gets narrower and narrower and narrower and then eventually ends up holding the hand of a leader interested in 
you're not mentioning reform, but making the adjustments necessary aligned to people, not programs. I don't remember reading about a program that you wrote about, right? This is a, this is a book about navigating people, right? And helping support people along the way on the path to improve. At least that's how I read it. So as I was doing so, whether that's right or wrong, you start off by mentioning procedural, structural, and cultural change. Can you unpack that for a little, you know, you, you do a better job than I would. Can you unpack those three things for us? Sure. There are, I, I believe there are three levels of change, procedural change, structural change, and cultural change. And, and well, let's talk about it in terms of a school, but it's the same thing. These processes all apply to every business, every organization, every church, every community function, everything. Um, a procedural change is the kind of change that could, but you never should, could be done through an email. In other words, an example of a procedural change could be instead of taking attendance at the, end, at the start of each hour, we're going to take attendance at the end of each hour to more accurately reflect who is actually there. Okay, That could be done by email, but shouldn't be. A structural change would be we're going to go from a four block schedule to an eight block schedule. We're going to go to teaming at the middle school. We're going to we're going to put structures that are different. And a cultural change is means we're going to do things different around here. We're going to put students first. We're going to make decisions based on children instead of adults. And the thing to realize is anytime you make a cultural change, um, anytime you do anything that changes the behavior of an adult, it is a cultural change. So you may have a procedural and structural change within that, but almost everything we're trying to do is a cultural change. It's sort of like the difference between having a new uh, policy on student behavior and improving student behavior. Because a new policy, that could be a procedural change or a structural change, but actually improving student behavior is going to take a cultural change because we're never going to change, improve student behavior until we improve adult behavior. And so that's kind of the level. And so really what the whole process is, how do we change the culture of our organization? Because if I can teach you how to do that, I have great faith you can do procedural and structural changes. You know, when you said, you mentioned uh, changing the culture, you probably uh, remember back or remember Roland Barth that would describe culture um, could be defined as just the way we do things around here. Right. And it also being the most challenging thing to change because it's really embedded in belief systems and sometimes past practice. So for a leader to change culture, well, that's that's not easy. Chapter four is where I thought the rubber started meeting the road, because when you talk about determine who matters most, you start focusing on how do I help people? based upon their influence, their motivations, um, potentially even their, um, some, some of their abilities, whether it be in the classroom or to influence others or just maybe an interest in wanting to change. So you started to tap really on how do I diagnose those that I'm leading in order to serve them well amidst this road to change. And so I saw that chapter as be, to be like this touchstone of all of the rest of the book on how I align my efforts as a leader to see things through to fruition to improve the system. Um, so what if the dynamic, you must run across leaders who think their dynamic in their school specific to those they're serving and leading is just different and unique. Right. Now, I'm not saying it's not, 
But don't you find that most organizations are just complex because your point earlier you said is it's not programs, it's people. People are complex. Sure, right. And, and everything is to deal with people. You know, it's funny. I've written several books now on school culture with Steve Gruner, who's truly, in my opinion, the most knowledgeable person of school cultural culture in the world. But what's interesting, I almost didn't want to write them because I was afraid culture people would use culture as an excuse. Mm. What would happen is leaders would go, I can't do anything about it. It's the culture. No, no, it's, it's the culture of the organization. But one of the things I think we can never lose sight of, use the word culture and leadership. They're very interchangeable. Very seldom do you have a dysfunctional culture. You almost always have a dysfunctional leader. And maybe you're the new leader, so you inherited that dynamic. But, but those two things are so connected and we get confused. And remember, culture and climate, there really is no such thing. They're in your mind. So if I change people's minds, then I've changed the culture and climate. And that's, that's, that's a much easier thing to do than you think it is. I think the other thing to think about is this, is, is culture and climate are so connected, but they're not the same thing. But I'll give you an example. If today our school decides we're going to treat every student with respect and dignity, Today, we decide we're going to treat every student with respect and dignity. That day, we've changed the climate. But did you know if we never quit, we change the culture? And so understand that hmm. climate is an easy gateway. It's just having, it's, that's what I mean. That's simple, but it's just not easy to continue to do that all the time. But if you continue to do that all the time, you literally change the culture. And what day it moved from climate to culture is completely irrelevant. It's sure. completely irrelevant. It doesn't make any difference at all. I, I had a professor um, tell me once when we were talking about culture and we were describing that, you know, like I said before, culture is this kind of deeply embedded concept on how we do things around here. And then he said, well, then what's climate? And I said, well, I don't know. And he said, well, climate, if culture is what you say, then climate is how people feel about it. Right, And so if you can impact the way people, to your point, feel about it by changing hearts and minds of people, right, that makes a difference in just the overall aura of the culture of the organization, would it not? Right. I, I also think that we get confused because culture now becomes just a generic term for everything. Sure does. And I want us to never lose sight of leadership. Now, I know you're in the South, and congratulations on Georgia's uh, uh, second national championship. But I'm going to go to Alabama. Okay? okay, people have talked about Alabama's culture, and Nick Saban talks about Alabama's culture all the time. Okay, and they act like it's a mysterious thing. See, I don't think it's culture; I think it's leadership. Because if Nick Saban goes to a program that isn't successful, and the coach of the unsuccessful program goes to Alabama, are they going to continue to talk about Alabama's culture? No. They're going to talk about where Nick Saban's went culture, aren't they? They are. Because it isn't just culture. It's also leadership. And if there isn't leadership, culture really struggles to change. And in addition, it really struggles to change in any expediency whatsoever. And one of the things, some of the experts in culture who know way more than I do talk about it takes three to five to seven to 10 years to change culture. And I say in education, we don't have 10 years. And I'm not talking about because education is dysfunctional. I'm talking about because there's children that walk through our doors today. See, if you have students, if you have children in school, do you hope the schools become good in three to five to seven years? No. You hope it becomes good in three to five to seven minutes. Yeah. 
we have to start at that point because education is so much more important than other things are. Yeah. Well, uh, you're, you're right. I, and I was told the, the same thing as a new principal is the amount of time it's going to take to improve the overall systems and culture would take X number of years. And in the meantime, we were charged with determining what are our goals relative to literacy for students by the end of first semester and the year. Those things uh, don't, didn't align. Right. 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 If we don't change culture, but how can we increase attendance by 18%? Right. In a yes. Right. Exactly. Yeah. You know, and I think it's also understanding, you know, one of the things I talk about is leverage points, but I also talk about where do you start? You'd mentioned that every change you want to make, you start with your new teachers and your best teachers. You start with your best teachers because they'll do it and they'll do it right. You start with your new teachers because it's not new to them. Yeah. I believe in teachers going in each other's classrooms in non-judgmental, non-evaluative ways. They're just going in to steal ideas. So you can get sophisticated, but don't start sophisticated. Just go in each other's rooms. Well, during an interview, I say to a new teacher, we don't have any of this in my school, but they don't know this. I say in an interview with a new teacher, what would you think about uh, maybe doing like a mutual exchange where you go into great teachers' classrooms and steal ideas and they come into your classroom too? What would you think about that? Well, during the interview, when there's more leverage than there'll be at any other point in time, Jeff, what do they think, in the, what do they think about that in the interview? Well, they're gonna say that's a great idea. And you know what I've done? I've made new seem normal because this is a new concept, but I've made it seem normal. They start and guess what they're wondering? When do they start the mutual exchange? You make new seem normal. See, cause it exists here. So in their eyes, the culture, we go in each other's classrooms. Yeah. And they start with the best teachers because they'll do it and they'll do it right. The best teachers will, obviously the new teachers will learn a lot from the best teachers unless you've hired incorrectly in terms of your new teachers. And the best teachers will at the very least pretend to learn a lot from the new teachers because of the fact confidence is the most valuable gift we can give. And all of a sudden what happened is we have success the first time we've done it because one of the concepts I introduce things with is make sure the first exposure is great. If there's anything we do wrong related to change, culture, that type of thing, is we don't make sure the first exposure is great and it takes eight times longer to unlearn something than it does learn something. Because in education, how many programs and concepts have you heard that wasn't didn't get introduced correctly? And now we can never even mention them anymore. We have to rebrand them, rename them, but it's only because we didn't introduce it correctly. That's right. And, and, and understand when you introduce it correctly, then you gain eight times more support than you would have had if you introduced it incorrectly. The other thing I tell people, and this is this is true, and it's just a caution, is if you would like to change the culture, two words you probably should never say are changing culture. Because when the culture feels threatened is the, when it's the strongest. Uh -huh. And climate is a much better way to start. The same thing when I start with two teachers, the new teacher and best teacher. They're both for the mutual exchange. Now look how much easier it is for me to add another teacher, the next least resistant teacher. Add another teacher, the next least resistant teacher. And all of a sudden they're being successful. What happens to most people, and this is one of the reasons they struggle with change, they focus on the ones who won't, not the ones who will. And so what happens is, let's say you have 50 teachers in a school and you wanna do a mutual exchange, many leaders will go, I have four teachers that won't do it. And my response to that is, so what? Don't give away the power to those four people. Their power is incidental. Are you better off if no teachers do it or two teachers do it? And two, two right. And, and you're not going to go to 50 till you get to two. But you know what? Even if you just get to 40, 
Are you better off or worse off? You're better off. You, sometimes you just have to start with the willing, right? And you've taken away the power from the 10 to resist. And well, if I exposure is great. So the new teacher's first visit in a class has to be a positive experience. And the person coming in their class, it has to be a reinforcing positive experience or else they become afraid. And if I force someone, especially at the beginning, make sure the first exposure is great. If I force someone from the beginning to go and observe, they're going to hurt the new teacher's feelings. They're going to make sure that that's not a positive experience because they don't want this exchange going on anymore, if that makes sense. It makes tremendous sense. I want to I want to take this a little bit deeper, and maybe I also want to somehow prove to you that I read your book. But you you mentioned that um, you mentioned the the impetus of change. I hope I got that correct. That the the leader's job is also to really look at some of those you know just overall motivations, which are which are different for different kinds of people, right? It's not always bad or good. It's just sometimes they're different. But a leader's job, at least this is what I took from what I remember, is to really understand so that I am approaching this teacher that so that I know what will move them, him or her. So can you talk to us a little bit, well, based on what you just said, it really connects to that concept of understanding the impetus of change of those that you're leading so that you can be effective. Can you kind of unravel that for us a little bit? I'm going to generalize here, but I think you'll, it'll maybe help the concept. Okay. Great people change because it benefits the kids. All people change because it benefits them. Mm-hmm. Anytime I'm introducing a concept, I have to give you two reasons. This is the simplest way I can explain it. I have to give you two reasons to change. One, because it benefits the kids. One, because it benefits you. That's the only way to get everybody on board. See, because the great people will do it because it benefits the kids. Everybody else will do it because it benefits them. Things like classroom management. You know, it, it's so interesting. People want to change test scores. And I always say, you ever been told to raise your test scores? And everybody says, yes, they have. And I said, have you ever been holding back on that? You know, do you try to leave <laughs> You know, everybody does the best. But also, everyone would improve their test scores if they could, because it benefits them. The worst teacher, they'd still like it to look better if they improved their test scores. But what happens is typically leaders tell they don't teach. They tell you to raise your test scores instead of teaching you to raise your test scores. And what you realize with them is they don't know how. But classroom management, understand that what percent of teachers would like their job better if they were better at managing their classroom? All of them. 100%. All of them. You know what's amazing? What percent would significantly like their job better if they were better at managing their classroom? That's different in every school, but it's a pretty high number. I would assume so. And we know before the pandemic, during the pandemic, and after the pandemic, the two the two biggest reasons people quit their jobs, teachers, they don't like their supervisor, and they have trouble managing their class. Just think if their supervisor could help them manage their class. You've gotten rid of both those reasons. And what I think is interesting is I don't understand why we don't start at that level, is because as a principal, I had to teach my teachers how to manage their class better. But it's because they like their job better. I like my job better. The kids like school better. And look at the indirect effect on uh, standardized tests. But when we don't start there, when we start at a more sophisticated level that's out of reach of people, then all of a sudden what happens is not only do we get discouraged, but we really don't help the school in a big picture. Because we do, many times we do things that are, are, 
well beyond where we are as people to be able to move forward. So what I, what I hear you saying is that it's very strategic as when you look at the, the impetus for change for the people that you're leading to, to, to not just make the assumption that everyone is going to be driven by what's best for kids. Of course, that's what we would hope. That's what we would uh, dream of the original why of all educators, but not all teachers were created the same, right? Not all teachers act or feel the same. So what I hear you saying is that's okay because your job is as a leader is to potentially improve some of the behavior strategies, management strategies in the classroom because that's good for everyone. So if I can sell this in a way where it's good for not only kids, but it's good for you, it's good for me, it's good for the community, et cetera, then you're creating less leaks to the argument. Is that correct? Sure, right, exactly. You have a, a selfish reason to do it. And that's the best incentive that there possibly is. The other thing I think we get confused, we talk about changing people's beliefs. I think most of the time you have to change people's behaviors first. Think about if you had a, a, a concept of uh, you'd like to become healthier, you'd like to lose weight, you'd like to exercise more. Mm -hmm. And I say, try this. And I try to explain all the logical reasons and it never works. But let's just pretend and said, I get a commitment, try it for five days. If it works, do you now believe in that program, in that concept? You don't even care what the background of it is. I, I work with people all the time about, and it sounds funny because one of my guidelines I lay it out as, as for my teachers is we don't argue, we don't yell, we don't use sarcasm. And I teach them how to do this and what to do and what happens when you use those things. And I also teach them about recognizing and valuing kids and making them feel important and making them feel special. I have people that I know don't believe it. They think it's all hooey. But you know, they do it and all of a sudden now they believe it because it worked. And so with many people, you have to get the change in behavior before you're going to get a change in belief. And so often we start way too much with the beliefs with people who are more likely to be resistant and we just need to start with the behaviors. And in addition, which is really weird, if you treat every student with respect and dignity, I don't have any idea why you're doing it. I'm just glad you're doing it. And and this is this is not just a behavior. This can be in anything in the school. Like I mean, so for example, if you have a literacy initiative, and you say obviously, rarely are you going to put literacy on the back burner. But um, if you focus on behaviors specific to a particular instructional strategy, and we are all going to engage in this behavior, and you experience some level of result specific to students doing well in literacy. You pump those results and all of a sudden it's no longer based upon belief. It's based upon I have evidence. If I right. do this, then this happens. Right. Right. And there are people who would be resistant or just going, it works. Yeah. I can't believe it. I'm, I'm completely shocked, but it works. Right. I think the other thing, though, to understand with the literacy change, with a behavioral change is anything. Again, start with the new people and best people. Because the best people figure out all the nuances of the new program. If you, it's really funny. If you send your very best people to training, they're better than the trainers because they're mm -hmm. smarter than the trainers. They're more skilled than the trainers. They understand how to bring this back and implement it in your school with your kids. All of a sudden, what happens now is you're not just operating on beliefs anymore. We have success in our school with our kids, with our environment. And that's so much easier to build off of concrete local success 
than it is a workshop. And I'm not putting, you might have needed the workshop to get those people going, but understand that. But if I sent average people, they would come back, they wouldn't do it right, they might not like it, they might actually work against it. And that's the reason you have to sort out where do we start and make sure that first exposure is great. And you also want to have great people get the first exposure. That doesn't mean you just send your two best people and then they become ostracized from the rest of the faculty. You may take two best people and five solid backbones who have influence with the faculty, but together those two can lead the five and now you have seven people. Two to help teach the other five how to do it, five to help influence the rest of the faculty. And they don't have to know that's what they're doing, but that's what they're doing. But if you're not intentional about that, many times we send two negative people and we hope it'll change them. That's okay. At some point, start with the negative people. And, and, and it's funny because I'll, I'll, I, one of the examples I use, I think in the book, I've never read the book you have, so one of us is, knows and one doesn't. But if I send five teachers and four of them are, are solid and, and generally want to do the right thing and one's a negative person, many times the principal goes, well, I'll have them all um, present to the faculty at the faculty meeting. I said, you know, the problem with the first exposure, that negative person is providing an exposure before the faculty meeting and in the teacher's lounge. Right. They're yes. running the band director and they're going, what do you think about this new literature thing? The band director goes, I don't know anything about it. And the person's going, I heard that when you put it in a school, all the kids who play the trumpet quit. That's all I know. I've heard the kids play the trumpet quit. And now this person is providing the first exposure because you've made them one of the five experts too early. You and know, it's too late. There's already 20 people against it at the faculty meeting because of the fact this person you made an expert and now they're providing expertise to the other people in a negative fashion, if that makes sense. You know, it, it, I, I hope this comes across well. You know, you, you talk um, in, in a very similar way as to how you write. You're, you're very tact, you, you, you talk about tactics and strategy, right? So, um, which I really appreciated. And so I, I assume that you must get this feedback that people appreciate very specific, specific examples almost a, if you want to see this then here's some input or advice based upon your experience and the things that you've seen and written about it's just so specific this what you write comes across as more of a playbook than um uh theory to me and you do the same when you talk and so i, I assume you've gotten this feedback before am i right todd well my books like it or not are me talking one way or the other you know my third book was dealing with difficult parents and it's interesting, I wrote that book because I was principal of three different schools and in all three schools, I had teachers that didn't know what to say when they call parents. But I, don't, I told them, I don't want you to call parents if you don't know what to say. I don't want it to go wrong. You lose your confidence. And, and I would teach them specifically what to say. And I always tell them, and I mean it sincerely, Jeff, I couldn't be more sincere. I don't care if you do what I suggest. If you have a better way, please do the better way. But I know this will work just in case you don't have a better way. And I teach them how to start a conversation. I always talked about a stem, how you stem every conversation exactly the same, how you end the conversation. If you and the parent disagree, focus on the future because you both both don't want it to happen again. And, and, I, and I would also have my teachers come in and they would hear me make phone calls to negative parents. And they'd get to hear how I started the conversation, how I always support teachers, how I'm always professional. But sometimes at the end of the conversation, I would have to tell them that parent is crazy. <laughs> yeah. and the reason I'd have to tell them isn't mean. It's because if they don't know that parent's crazy, they think they're crazy. Yeah. 
but they also got to see how professional I dealt with that parent. You know, I'm never get rattled. I never get upset. I always support the school. I'm always kind. I'm always professional. So they needed to hear that, even though in my mind, I'm going nuts. Right. That, that's their fault. <laughs> um, but they needed to hear that. And I don't mean it mean. And what happens is then they understand the challenging kids they're going to treat with respect, no matter what they think of the kid. In a great teacher's classroom, every kid thinks they're the favorite. Every kid thinks they're the favorite in a great teacher's classroom. And they're not all the favorite. The teacher doesn't like them all the same. Yeah. But they think they do because of the way they treat them. And that's what I have to teach my faculty and staff to do is, is treat them all. I, you know, I always say treat kids as if they were special because they are. But I teach leaders, treat your teachers as if they were special because they are. And, and as you know, this is not just with children. I mean, so yeah. my, my grown-up mentors are ones that I thought they, they, they seem to care for me more than they care for other people for some reason. For some reason, I have had an impact that has made them want to serve me as one who's being mentored by them. And then I come to find out that there are 50 people just like me that assume the same thing about this dear mentor of mine. How dare they have the same mentor as I have? But it's because this person's a great teacher, right? And they know how to establish these relationships. And it's a gift, right? It's a gift. But it's a gift you can learn. Agreed. You know, I always say uh, there are a few things more powerful than a well-placed compliment. And when you compliment people, what happens is you stand out because so few people do it. You know, and and, and there's nothing wrong with it. I always say look for the good parts. Sometimes you have to squint, you know. But I mean, (laughs) it's it's complimenting people, making them feel important, make them feel special. They want to be around you. They want to be like you. They want to follow you. And I'm not saying this in any kind of derogatory way. This has to become the way you operate as a person. And when you do this, it's the difference between power and influence. I always teach, I always try to teach every time you use power, you lose power. Every time you use influence, you gain influence. And the best advice I ever got was, you know, to prove who's in charge, everybody knows who's in charge. And the more you try to prove it, the more people try to prove you wrong, just like in the classroom. The best teacher, how often does he or she try to prove who's in charge in the classroom? Never. Everybody knows it. The worst teacher, how often does he or she try to prove who's in charge in the classroom? 20 times an hour and there's 25 kids spending as fast as they can to prove them wrong. Yes. Your confidence at starting at the points of least resistance is so much better than your confidence at starting at the point of most resistance. And so often our instincts are to focus on the most negative people, the strongest personalities. And it's just a mistake. It's, it's just, it's, many times in an organization, and I say this, and I'm going to talk about it in terms of schools, but I work with other organizations too. Many times in an organization, a principal in a school, a principal has at least one teacher that would like it if they could make them cry. And many schools have at least one teacher that would like it if they could make the new pretty young teacher who's better than they are cry. So if that's who you're trying to please and appease, that's who you're giving all the power to. Yeah. I've been it. there. You, you can't. Uh, and, and they want the power. I mean, they're, they're seeking the power. But what happens is you cannot give them that power because not only does it cause you to lose confidence, it it causes all the other teachers in the school to be resentful. And I think it's so funny. I'm, I'm amazed how many leaders tell me they go, I don't understand why they, these people don't stand up to their peers. And I said, and you know what their peers wonder? Why you don't stand up to them. That's what <laughs> well when you said. Have a, functional 
people aren't mad at the peer, they're mad at the leader. And they should be. And I'm not stand up to them doesn't mean anything tough or mean. I coached basketball. And you know what I used to tell my players? You lose your man again, you're not going to play again the rest of the quarter. Yeah. And all I had to do was mean it once. I never have to say it mean. And you know why I didn't yell at my players when I was a coach? Because I knew some of them were going to be coaches. And some of them are going to coach four-year-olds in T-ball. And they're going to think, how was I coached? And I don't, I don't want them treating four-year-olds like that. And even if they're not going to coach, they're coaching from the stands. And we see it all the time at Little League. I don't want them to think that's how they're supposed to treat people. And that's what we see all the time. How that's, they think that's how we're supposed to treat people. And we're not. But you have to teach people this. You don't just tell them. You have to teach them. And once you teach them, I guarantee they learn it. And they want to do it. Todd, if if um, m- most and I, I've mentioned this to you, most of most of our support systems for leaders, whether they're principal all the way up through a superintendent, is connect them to each other. They're roundtable processes. Most of them. This is the this is the one thing that where we are giving some um, some content to them, you know, delivering it to them. But if you and I were to pretend we're at a round table. And there are leaders around with us, and we have a you know limited time, kind of an elevator speech, based upon what we've talked about so far. What would be your last kind of sixty seconds words of wisdom? What would you want to leave them with relative to the topic of leading change? Uh, the first thing is, and this is part of the whole roundtable. The roundtables neither good or bad. It depends who's at the roundtable. You know, if they're mm-hmm. not, if the people aren't great, it doesn't do any good. I present all the time. You know why I don't have people talk to their neighbor more? What if their neighbor's stupid? It's a waste of their time. <laughs> and I would say, the first thing I would always say, the biggest disadvantage a leader has is they've never worked with a great leader because now you have to figure it out on your own. And that's a huge disadvantage. But on change, my first instinct is a couple things. One, make every decision based on your best people and you'll never make a wrong decision. Okay. Do you know when you pull the trigger and do something? When your good people want think you should do it because the good people, the very best people, the superstars have a, have an organization wide vision and they're not saying move forward. Cause I'm ready. They're saying move forward. Cause I think we're ready. I, I think we're ready to do it. That doesn't mean everybody, but we have a critical mass that's ready to go ahead and do it. The other thing I always tell people, cause I've written books for new teachers and people will say, what's the one piece of advice for new teachers. And I hate questions like that, even though you just ask it. But anyhow, one of the things I ask it, people say, I say, trust your gut, your gut's right. Okay. You're handling a situation wrong. You feel uncomfortable. If you ignore your gut, you'll continue to behave like that. The new teacher comes in and the new teacher is frustrated. They're tired. They didn't know teaching was going to be this difficult. And they yell at the kids. The new teacher, the very first time they yell at the kids, it may have worked. Meaning it may have got the kids attention for a short period of time. It may have worked. The new teacher that trusts their gut, you know what they think? I don't want to do that. I don't want to be that teacher. Mm -hmm. I had that when I was in school. I don't want to be that teacher. And they don't yell again. A teacher that ignores their gut, guess what they do the next day? They yell. And then they yell. And eventually their gut stops telling them it's even wrong. And that's the same thing for the leader. If you feel like that, just ask the best teachers. My book, Dealing with Difficult Teachers, first book I ever wrote. You know when you deal with a new teacher, I mean, deal with a dysfunctional teacher when the good people want you to. Because it's going to be to the point it's hurting the school and it's hurting students. It's not just that it's annoying. Yeah. It's not that it bothers them to them. It's that it's hurting the school and hurting to the hurting students. 
ask the best teachers. You have the superstars, and you have to understand the definition. The superstars are the only people in an organization that will look you in the eye, tell you the truth, and they're never part of the rumor mill. And Jeff, they can tell you, am I moving too fast? Am I moving too slow? What should I do about these other people? And I even, before I even introduce them, because the first exposure has to be great. So I even go to a couple of my superstars and say, here's what I'm thinking about saying. Here's what I'm thinking about doing it, doing. Am I pushing too fast? Am I doing it incorrectly? Am I doing it in an offensive way? Am I going to lose people? Am I hurting people's feelings? Because they want you to be successful. And there's only a few, few people in every organization that wants the leaders to be successful. So like you say, never the program. A lot oh, easier to leader than it is to be a leader. I apologize. It's so much easier to criticize a leader than it is to be a leader. And most people are glad. To, I would say uh, it's really funny. The last few years show this. People always look to leaders, but during times of crisis, they stare. <laughs> yeah. They're glad it's not them that has to be the leader. Yeah. I call this judging up, right? It's What's easy that? to judge up. Oh, it's right. Monday quarterback. It's an incredible, beautiful target um, that, you know, everyone can circle around and talk about and be right about 100% of the time because they're not doing it. Exactly right. right. And, um, and they have results to use in a determination of the decision that was made. The leader didn't have the results until after they made the decision. Well, like you say, it's never the program. It's always the people whether these are the, the, the right things or the wrong things. And Todd, I know that I've been chasing you for a while to get you here on this show with us. And uh, um, we're very fortunate, I'm very fortunate that we were able to get some of your time because this, this, is, this is actually exactly what I hope for. In this concept of a leader chat, I, I hope to find these rock star educators who can come and have this honest discourse and discussion and sometimes take lots of content that sometimes people have a hard time getting to and really boil it down so that we can hand this to the leader to help them improve, to help them think, to help them consider some new strategies they haven't otherwise. And so this is just precisely the reason we do these leader chats. I'm so thankful you're here with me today. Well, you're, you're very kind and I just appreciate the opportunity to interact with educational leaders uh, that they're so significant and I am going to give them just so they can know how the sausage is made here. Um, we can see how good a job I did or not, because this was actually a 48 hour interview. So Jeff said he was going to get rid of everything that was no good and just leave the good part. So if you could let me know how long the actual interview ends up being, that'll tell me what portion of what I shared actually had merit and value. So Deal. Hours consecutive it was like Le Mans. And so uh, just let me know how uh, that actually ended up on the cutting room floor. Deal, deal. I, you, you, you'll, you'll see, of course, the, the final product and you'll be able to determine how successful we were. But I think that you're going to feel very similar to I do. I mean, this is, this is exactly what I hope for in these leader chats. And Todd, I'm so appreciative of you. Thank you. You're kind. And I tell leaders this all the time. Uh, leading is lonely and I am nobody. But if anybody ever just wants to visit, just wants to talk, Call me or email me anytime. My website's toddwhitaker.com. I don't have any people. On Twitter, I'm at Todd Whitaker. And literally every day I get calls or emails from people. And it's just because even teaching, I say teaching is the most isolated profession and you're never alone. But I'm a neutral outsider who will tell you the truth and I'm on your side.
And I will never tell anybody you contacted me. So don't be worried about that. Anybody, and I'm nobody, Jeff's better than me, but um, if when his phone's busy, just call me anytime. Well, it's why we started the leadership circle. It's because of the isolation of leaders. And we, when we, when we present this conversation to leaders and when we post this podcast with your information, you're going to have a busy phone line or, you know, who, whoever ends up calling. So we will promote that. And uh, because we, we do appreciate you. So thank you for what you do, Todd. It's a treat for me. It's from right here. I just care. That's it. And I know all of you too. That's why I'm doing it. Well, by all means. All right. Well, you be well. Thank you. Appreciate it very much. The same. Ladies and gentlemen, I don't know what to say. Um, the, the dilemma with me and Todd is that because it, Todd is who he is, I, I could talk to him for a lot longer than that. I, I, there's so many questions I still wanted to ask to get his perspective because clearly he is an honest man, an honest educator who's willing to tell us what he thinks based upon his experience and he has vast experience. So I know that you've enjoyed this and learned just as much as I have. Ladies and gentlemen, educators, leaders, be well.